calling all denizens of the dark, mavens of mayhem, and champions of chaos. Lock your doors and listen close. It's time for another episode of Spies, Lies, and Private Eyes. Here's your host, Terrence McCauley. I am Terrence McCauley, and this is Spies, Lies, and Private Eyes on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. You can find me on social media and by visiting my website at terrencemccauley.com. That's T-E-R-R-E-N-C-E-M-C-C-A-U-L-E-Y.com. I am very fortunate and excited about our guest today. It is, he is uh, Michael Frost Beckner. He began in the entertainment industry as Barry Levinson's writing assistant on movies like Good Morning Vietnam and Rain Man. He went on to collaborate on screenplays and other writing reads, and, and his other writing reads like a roll call of Hollywood heavyweights like Harrison Ford, Wolfgang Peterson, Gail Ann Hurd, Eddie Murphy, and writers such as Tom Clancy and John LeCarrick. His screenplay, Spy Game, went on to star Robert Redford and Brad Pitt. And as I already told him, it's one of my favorite movies. We could spend the rest of the day talking about his accomplishments, but he's appearing on this podcast to discuss his new trilogy of novels in the spy game universe. Those titles are Muir's Gambit, Bishop's Endgame, and Aiken in Check. Thank you for being here, Michael. It's really an honor to be able to talk to you and discuss these fantastic books with you. Thank you for having me, Terrence. This is uh, quite, a, quite an honor for me as well. So obviously, as I just said with your biography, you have had quite a writing uh, career so far and, uh, and quite a career in Hollywood. I mentioned earlier that Spy Game is one of my favorite films. And since this is a podcast about books, I was wondering how does this new trilogy relate to Spy Game? Well, it starts with when I originally wrote Spy Game, I had started writing a novel and I wanted to write an espionage novel. Um, I'd studied novel writing at, at the university, University of Southern California under T.C. Boyle and kind of got, got sidetracked into film, but I was in a comfortable place. I thought I was in a comfortable place uh, to take a year off and write this book. And so I, I thoroughly outlined it. I had maybe half of it written and then I maybe wasn't in as comfortable a place financially and uh, because I'd taken a year off. And so I lopped off the end of the book uh, and turned it into the screenplay that became Spy Game. Um, that, uh, when that sold, uh, the company Beacon Pictures, uh, since the, I'd not finished the book and it hadn't been obviously published or picked up by a publisher, um, they decided that they couldn't compete with Warner Brothers was another studio that wanted to make Spy Game. They couldn't compete with the money Warner Brothers was offering, but they said, look, you can keep the characters and the universe and your other book and any other book you want to write. We just want to make this one. And, and the idea at the time um, was for a small ensemble movie and, 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 um, and they, didn't, they didn't want to spend a whole lot of money. So that's, that's where it began. And so I always had the other part of the spy game story in outline form sitting in a desk drawer. I did not, uh, I now have six children and, and one grandson I'm guardian to. 
And so, and they range from age of 30 to 13 months. I had so many children and a couple ex-wives and a current wife that I never had a chance to stop working again. I stayed in Hollywood. I moved from uh, screenwriting. I expanded into television, uh, right. created a show, The Agency, which was about the CIA. Um, and that at the time, I wrote that in April of 2001, and it predicted the CIA revamping for a war on terrorism when Osama bin Laden attacks the West in a, in a cataclysmic event. Um, right. and, and then that, that happened, um, much like I'd written it. Um, and, and so that propelled me in television to kind of a, a long career there the past 20 years, um, writing espionage and, and, and thrillers and that sort of thing. So right. then I was, so I'm doing film and, and TV. And it wasn't until 2017, the writing was on the wall that another writer strike was happening. Um, kids, half my kids had grown up. Uh, I was in a pretty financially sound position. Uh, and I was a little bit starved to actually write a little bit, dig a little bit more into writing, into my work being the be all end all of, of what I'm presenting, not just a recipe for a movie or a TV show, um, right. which is its own art form and its own thing. And I'm, and I'm blessed to be very competent at it. Um, but I really wanted to not just stand on my own words, but, but work with the language a little more closely to, to, right. to, convey, to convey my art. So I sat down and I pulled out that file. Well, over the years, I'd been adding bits and pieces to it. And I realized right then that I had uh, a number of books within that first part and a lot of stuff that had come transpired later, the 20 years or God, since the 90s, so even longer, since I'd, I'd written Spy Game, that had kind of boosted the characters past the events of Spy Game. So I decided, well, I'm going to move into writing books, might as well uh, write, you know, not just write one, but write three. And, right. and see if I can tackle this period with these characters because my, my stuff goes on and, and, and continues on. And one of the characters in the movie, Russell Aiken, had a, in the original script, uh, had a larger role. And okay. that's diminished to two lines in the movie. Um, and uh, the actor never knew that there was a larger role, so he was never disappointed. But it would have been a bigger role for an actor, but he, he was left out. And I thought to my, and he's the character of uh, a CIA officer in the Office of the General Counsel. And these are the guys that basically write up the, design the uh, con plans, con concept plans, and make the operational plans, and make it all legal for our own, you know, it's illegal activities, but make it legal under the auspices of, you know, Congress and our government, and what is legal and not legal for an, uh, intelligence operations. And right. I've always found the character quite fascinating because he's the guy, he's not pulling the trigger anywhere. He's not breaking any laws anywhere uh, except every other country's. And, and he is sending out the orders that give people the, the opportunity and the um, get out of jail free card to do that stuff. I thought this is kind of an interesting character. And right. so in trying to tell the story, the continuing story of Nathan Muir, who was played by Redford and Tom Bishop, Brad Pitt's character, um, I felt like the great narrative frame is through the eyes 
of this other guy and who, who Russell Aiken is, is he is the guy that Nathan Muir recruited before Tom Fisher. And he okay. really wanted to be a, a field officer and uh, operate, you know, in, you know, in glamorous foreign things. He kind of starry eyed in the James Bond sort of way. He's kind of as a young man, college student being recruited. He was sold on that high to the Cold right. War. And Muir sets him on a desk. And basically, he's been a lawyer at the CIA all this time and very jealous of Tom Bishop, feeling that he got his ticket. And, and, and um, you know, Nathan Muir, in his own way, is a father figure to him as well. But he's the, the son that, you know, gets ripped off by the dad. And that's how he feels. He feels very bitter about it. And so I then had the film. I didn't really want to rewrite the movie or novelize, not do a novelization. Uh, so I thought, how do I tell this story of, of these characters in this triangle, which is what it is, uh, with the movie in the middle? And I thought, well, the first part of the book was easy because that's, why did we get there? Why is Robert Redford going in and retiring that day? Um, it's right. a movie trope, but you know, in, in creating the character, it has to have a reason. And it's not mentioned in the film. Well, the first book is about that. It takes place uh, 48 hours, up until that morning that Redford walks in the doors of Atlanta. Okay. And okay. Uh, it, it very, to encapsulate it very briefly, it is, Charlie March is the guy who recruited Nathan Muir during the Korean War. And he was okay. his mentor. And when the book opens, Charlie March, who's long retired from the CIA, a big hero, um, written a best-selling you know, autobiography approved by the CIA. And you know, he's something of a celebrity. He's assassinated on his private boat, you know, a sailing boat. And okay. the last words he says is tell Nathan, tell Nathan he had nothing to do with this, that he didn't murder anyone. Well, you know, that gets to the FBI and who's Nathan and oh, Nathan Muir and the CIA is in a panic. Like we can't have Nathan Muir question because once they pry open his mouth, they're going to get a touch. You know, these guys operated together for years. We don't want the FBI anywhere near this. This right. is long. This is the nineties. It's, it's, uh, a long ways before, um, uh, you know, interagency cooperation. There was very little cooperation. Right. And so they send Russell Aiken there to get his resignation and to lock, to get his confession. They think he did it. Um, and which he, you know, is adamant that he did not kill his mentor. And, he's, and he spends the book telling him, here's how I didn't kill him. It's basically kind of how it works. Here's how I didn't do it at all. And, and so it's this interrogation, but it's also a deep dive into the characters, like the movie itself, which doesn't go into the running and jumping and gun in the fist uh, kind of shoot 'em up uh, right. Jason Bourne world. Um, this is, is also about that kind of espionage. And it, and it takes us back through the Cold War. And in a sense, it's structurally the same as Spygate. It's right. an interrogation with a series of vignette flashbacks uh, throughout the Cold War, it goes from the Korean War to Cyprus at the partitioning of Cyprus. Um, it goes, it takes place a little bit in Beirut, why Bishop and Muir are there. There's a bit of that. Um, the Palestine, Palestine uh, War with Israel um, mm -hmm. back in the early 70s. It, it, it goes through that. It goes to uh, Lumumba and the Congo, and it, it kind of takes us through that, the relationship of those two men while at the same time telling the parallel story of Russell Aiken's relationship with Tom Bishop and, right. um, and how the three men, you know, how this father has these two feuding sons in a sense. 
Um, right. And so it's, uh, it's really, and, and all the books are like this. They're, they're not about spying, but what it is to be a spy. And right. so Mirrors Gambit really can be, be viewed as two guys who have been sanctioned their whole life to tell lies, to, to, to lead lives of deceit and lying, how they sort of reconcile their, their souls on this sort of last night. Um, right. Then it goes into Bishop's Endgame. Bishop's Endgame picks up 10 years after Nathan Muir leaves the CIA, after uh, Tom Bishop's rescued. And it's 10 years later, and it starts around, uh, just around the time where Al-Qaeda has their summit in Kuala Lumpur, in Malaysia, that decides upon the Twin Towers thing. Um, right. And it goes from September of 2001 right up to September 11th. And, wow. and um, here again, Aiken is our narrator. Uh, Muir has retired and is just doing, working as an annuitant, um, rec doing recruitment out of Princeton. Um, He's established, it's not mentioned in the movie, but he's established as he, he works a lot as a professor. And a lot of CIA guys, you know, they, they, um, they go in and out of service. And when they go into re recruiting, a lot of them work at the university level recruiting people. He's good at recruiting. Right. So that's what he, that's what he does. Um, now he's, he's, he's long past retirement age. He's, you know, a, a, a professor of mythology. Um, and so he's recruiting at Princeton. Tom Bishop has basically gone AWOL in Kosovo and Russell Aiken is getting ready. He wants nothing more to do with the CIA and everything else. He's still an attorney. He's never been in the field. And right. it falls when Nathan Muir's, all his old networks all across the globe, all vanish. They just all go offline all at once. Um, wow. And the finger points at Tom Bishop they get Aiken, they go, you're the only one that's gonna get near enough to him. If he's done something, if Tom Bishop has, you know, cause he's AWOL, if he's behind this, you're the only one gonna get, get a little bit close to him, you know, that mm -hmm. he's not gonna just kill outright. So he gets his wish to go into the field, but it's tracking down his best friend, you know, his, his, his pseudo brother. Uh, okay. And so that, that one's quite a fun, uh, fun mystery. There's quite, quite a good mystery about the past. And what I do with that book, where the first one is about, you know, how do you, um, how do you justify yourself to yourself when you live a life of lies? Where everything you live in your outward thing is lies, how do you reconcile your, your soul to yourself? Right, and the that seems to be a, a common theme that goes throughout the so two that's, books. So yeah, far. and that's the first one. Well, so I expand that in the second book into, okay, so the guy that does that, what is their actual identity? Who is their identity to everyone else? And is that identity who you are? Because if you're always that to everyone else, is that who you are? Is, right. is, is, is it appearance versus reality or appearance is reality? And so, right. so philosophically, the characters are dealing with that in the second book. In the it third evolves book, from the first book and into through the, the from the first book yes. into the second book. That's interesting. And, and so then the third book picks that up um fraudulence and false identity then clash together in Aiken and Chet um right into it's the Aiken and Chet is all about it. it moves into the office of technical services and 
um, spy gadgetry a little bit, which uh, mm -hmm. on, a, on a real thing, ra rather than the magic wristwatch or the magic wand that James Bond always has, it's it's more really <laughs> what what are some of the what are some of the, the the devices and how are they designed and how do they even come up with them and what are they used for? Um, and so it gets into the flow of what the spy's main thing is is information, and the flow of information is 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 the end all be all uh, in the spy game is the stealing mm -hmm. of information, the analysis of information, the manipulation of information, and looking at okay, so you take the person who is fully full of deceit and has a false identity, and what is their impact directly on inf information they're receiving and, and manipulating and stealing? How does information physics really, it, how is it impacted by the person who receives it or takes it if they're not real? Um, so it's, it's pretty heady stuff. Um, the plot in that one is Aiken at that point his, he's found his true love. There's romance throughout and all the things you expect in, 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 a, in a robust epic novels. Sure. He's found his true love and she's captured by the, she's a Cuban American. She's captured by um, the Cuban intelligence service. And he has to decide to defect to Cuba to say, in order to save her. But knowing that by doing that, I lose her, but I save her life and I lose my country. And right. it's, it's his decision to do that. And that whole book is his, when you defect, you, you go through, a, I, I go into it quite a bit, the actual process of defecting. And you have to write a full confession. And they give you, they want you to write it, as, just write whatever you want and write it as long and as, as detailed and go off in any direction because they analyze all of it. They analyze that for deception and everything else. They, they have... Okay. In, in, in intelligence, they're looking at everything. They use every tool of every social science and everything. And, and so that's kind of a fun book because it's me getting to write a narrator's narration of him writing the book. There's, there's something fun about that. Um, right. And it's all before about, social media and stuff like that. So it's it's it was around, but it wasn't prevalent. So it that, definitely is, is a much more rich story to yeah he, he's using ask jeeves but he when he goes on the internet he uses ask, <laughs> ask jeeves the um and 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 the other fun thing about him um both of the, all three of the books have a uh, a thriller through line uh you know danger and a ticking clock and that sort of thing um but it's you know like like with spy game i don't think anyone honestly thinks to, uh brad pitt is gonna die in in china it's how is, is Redford going to get him out? So it's not about um, the activity of the adventure, an adventure like a James Bond, where he's going point A to point B, getting pieces right. of the puzzle and fighting his way through it. It's really the psychological spy game between all the players. Um, and so that, so I have one of those in, in each of the, each of the, the books. Nothing Russell Akins says, or half the time, not, he, he's either lying or he doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. As a narrator, he is not to be trusted at all. He has a hyperinflated sense of self. Um, he doesn't know that he's utterly hapless, and, and um, he's not Clouseau, but but uh, certain things that he does border on it. So there's also a, a, a good deal of humor and absurdity, more like sure. Vonnegut absurdity, not not Clouseau, you know, and, nope. and throughout. And so, so I take those. So we have a prequel and then two sequels, one that follows right on the other. 
And then the third component, maybe I'm at the fourth, is Spy Game, the movie of Spy Game. And what happened in China? What was Bishop doing there? Why was Elizabeth Hadley there? What's going on around the table? Because all of the stuff, it's everything they're saying is what they're saying, but in the spy game, it's what they're not saying and what's going on. So each right. book peels the onion a little further. So after you read each one, you can watch the movie again and go, oh shit, that's, I, I didn't even realize that was happening right there. So it, it, right. until the final book, we really, I won't give it away, but, but it is not what you think happened in the movie. You go back after you read the third book and watch the movie and go, oh boy, I got played even more than, than he played the CIA there. You know, he, he really played everyone. That's great that because kind of it, that I'm sure it was fun. And also too, it'll be fun for the reader because audiences love Easter eggs. And it yeah. sounds like this is going to be something that mixes media for everyone. They'll be able to look at the different medium, which is the movie, but then they'll be able to enjoy the books on their own, but also related to the established work, which is really interesting. and brave to do because a lot of authors want to eschew oh the, the book is one thing the movie is something else but obviously this is a whole idea that was born out of uh out of a screenplay so you embrace it which is fantastic yeah and, and, and it's so it ends up being sort of a it's a trilogy and it, it's best to read as a trilogy although I, I there is an argument to be made you could start at the second book uh, because it takes place right after the movie you won't know mm -hmm. a bunch of secrets but you get catch up pretty quick um, but it reads as a trilogy. It's not a series, really. There's not, Aiken's kind of finished, you know, his, his story is told. Um, but it's, it's sort of, there's that character in the film who's sort of the NSA guy or the, the National Security Council guy, um, who's sitting there, the, the kind of brooding guy that's like giving the head shake no and that sort of thing. Well, who is that guy? The books tell you exactly who he is and what's going on with him. And so that's the kind of expansion that, that I do on him. So it's really, in a sense, four parts. It's, it's four parts. One happens to be a movie. Um, right. So it's a quartet rather than a trilogy. Um, right. And, and so there's that then. And then I, I have a, uh, I'm working on a novella that takes one of the characters in the third book and moves her into the immediate present. So she's in her okay. 20s there. And so she's in her 40s at that point. Um, and that comes out next. And then I go back to Muir and where that was Aiken, the Aiken trilogy, the Muir trilogy happens. And, um, and I'll be starting that around the new year. Um, and that takes us to the 10 years between the end of the movie and Bishop's Endgame. So there's three books okay. there. And like the spy game, like I like to do where the, the past is impacting the present. The, the film does that brilliantly and, and very concisely where it's, it's, it's the sins of the past, the events of the past um, have everything to do what's happening with the right now and the, and the um, activity in the spy game of the present. So that will be all about, you know, from 91, 92 up to 2000 in present. It also goes back to why was uh, Nathan Muir in Vietnam recruiting Tom Bishop. And what else was he doing in, in those years? What, what was he doing in Vietnam? And, and, um, and I'm really looking forward to writing that. I've been doing a lot of, a lot of research on, on exactly what I wanna tell about. And it's, it's not the typical thing we get out of the Vietnam War. Um, right. But it's a lot, a lot in Laos and um, it's, it's quite interesting and I'm excited for that. And that will be the Muir, Muir Trilogy. 
yeah, thematically and uh, stylistically, it sounds an awful lot like it'll it won't be Robert Ludlum style books, but they'll actually be closer to uh, Charles McMurray books and also uh, John Lacari's book style as well. Um, I know that you've written, you've worked with Tom Clancy and John Lacari, and I was wondering how collaborating with them has impacted your uh, writing of this kind of uh, thrillers, because you've written a bunch of different types of stories and screenplays, but this one in particular. Yeah, the um, Tom Clancy, that came after I'd written Spy Game. I don't think it was made. And I was brought in and, and spent a lot of time at, he had the, a big compound um, uh, on the Chesapeake. It was exactly like that house in Patriot Games. It was oh, exactly okay. like that. Yeah, he wrote about his own, <laughs> his own house. Right on the cliffs, it was, it was fabulous. I spent a lot of time working with him. That was to develop a, a, a HRT, FBI HRT series. And we worked on it for quite a bit. We also worked on Without Remorse uh, for Paramount. Um, okay. And uh, is that the one? That's the one they just made with um, on Netflix. Is that the one I'm thinking of? Yeah, it was, of, uh, it was on Amazon Prime, I think. Amazon Prime, yeah. Remorse. So that was the one. Yeah, so we worked a lot on that. Um, he, he showed me, he taught me a lot about how to make the technical, uh, be part of the story, which is, right. which was his forte and actually make it, uh, you know, actually make it come to life rather than just be information. And so there was a lot, a lot of stuff we did without it. I really enjoyed his company. He was, he was terrific to work with just a lovely, lovely man with an absolutely lovely wife. Um, and, um, then Le Carre, uh, Sidney Pollack had wanted to do Spy Game, um, and it didn't go, it didn't, that never happened, but he, he liked it and, for, and he flirted around it. Um, but he was at Paramount Pictures at the time and they weren't interested in the script. They said too much talking, no one, the two characters never meet. It all takes place around the table. You're crazy. Um, <clears throat> so... <laughs> He called me in and he wanted me, he was having an adaptation done of The Night Manager. And I worked on that with him for four years. It was to follow up the firm and to have Tom Cruise star in it. And we worked on that oh. forever. His deal at Paramount ended and that kind of ended the project. But the great thing was, is I got to work way remotely. It was, you know, fax days uh, with David Cornwall, John Le Carre. Uh, right. because we needed a different ending. And I'm not sure how the miniseries ended it. I think they may have gone with this, the, the new ending rather than the book. Um, but he and I worked out uh, a, a wholly original ending for that book, just a, an alternate ending. And um, it was funny, I was going, packing some books up in my library and I found his faxed pages of the alternate John le Carre ending that he wrote and sent me. Oh, it's wow. pretty neat. It's pretty neat. It's, uh, he, that guy, he could write, I mean, he, he, as a screenwriter, you have to work fast, but as a novelist, you certainly don't. Um, he could write at blistering speed. He knew his character so well, you could, him being in, in you know, overseas in England, um, right. you'd call and then the next morning you'd have 20 pages that read like finished product John Le Carre. I mean, it, wow. it was astonishing and astonishingly good. And that was, well, that really was quite 
quite a remarkable uh, period of, of, of time I spent on that project. The, what I learned from him was uh, really to lean into the character. And that is why my books are, are more character-based um, right. rather than the, Jason, the Ludlum um, action stuff. The is really that the story just develops out of how the characters are be going to behave, that the plot right. is going to happen. These events will happen and take place and they don't need to be radical events. It doesn't need to be the president's plane's gonna blow up or the bomb's right. gonna go off. What makes them radical are what people do to each other and do to themselves in the process. And, and so that's really, really where, where we went with the night manager. I, I, I tend to think the longer, um, the longer format was better because it did allow, it becomes a character piece, which the film always wanted to be and was, and, um, and the studios probably wanted, Paramount ultimately probably wanted it to be more anodyne um, Fleming, you know, kind of stuff. Right. And, and um, but that was great. I ended up working, really my best uh, mentor was Sidney Pollack. I ended up working uh, for him from, I think, 1997 till the end of his life. And I worked wow. on all his, uh, all his projects that he did. He was originally going to, he developed the agency with me. And he's the one who put oh, me into okay. television. He said, look, you don't want to be a director. Um, you really are a writer's writer. You, you TV, you got to be in charge, which is why I've always liked television because you pick the director every week. You, you know the whole thing. You, you design the whole story. Um, okay. Movies are about, you know, when I write a movie, when I'm writing the first scene, I'm already writing the last scene. And when I'm writing a TV series, you don't want a last scene. You want it to continue on and have season after season and syndication and all the lovely things right. that television. <laughs> so there's a lot more room to explore character and, and the kind of things that I, I gravitate to. And I think my skill set is, is, is most honed to. Right. And so Sidney Pollack, he really taught me how, um, really how to write or not write what's there, to really be able to, to express in your writing just enough that you don't need to tell it and show it. In, in, in TV, you have, you know, you say dog and show a dog. And, and a lot of uh, TV does that. And a lot of movies do that. They, they over, over exposition in, in film and television. And, and in, right. in, in prose fiction, you don't ever want to mention the dog at all, but have everyone go, oh, that's a dog. You know, you don't want to write it down at all. And, and, and Sydney taught me to do that in television. And this was right at the point where television was starting to take off and be really the, the creative um, uh, wellspring that it is now uh, right. for, for good storytelling and, and rich characterization and that sort of thing. So I really benefited um, the most from him. Uh, I had the opportunity to learn from John le Carre. I'm still processing a lot of that. Um, I would imagine, yeah, I mean, God. And, uh, um, and then I was very lucky to have uh, Tom Boyle, uh, T.C. Boyle, as my uh, mentor and, and writing instructor in the university. Um, and uh, so I was all ready to start writing books. And so in 2017, I wrote the three books and, um, and have moved into that. It's, uh, it's, it's much more fulfilling and, and uh, um, I'm able to, to express more of what I want to express and tell the stories more the way I want to tell them. You don't get to tell them. In TV, you get a lot more leeway, but 
in feature film, you don't get to tell it the way. If you write a good script, they don't ever want to see you again. Um, right, and, yeah, because you've, you know, you've, it's, it's two hours and that's it, in and out, yeah. Yeah, and, the and, it's the, and it's the director's and the actor's project. It becomes that, and that's what you do it for. Um, and and so this is, is, is much more um, creatively fulfilling for me to be writing books now. I'm sure. Um, when you were working with Lacare, and I know you were working on The Night Manager with him, did you ever talk about novel writing with him? And do you know if he ever outlined or if he wrote uh, as it came to him? Did you ever get a chance to talk to him about his I was, I was, I was too scared. No, I was chicken. I, 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 yeah. Um, I was in my 30s and, uh, okay. and, and he was a, a hero of mine and it was uh, long distance and he's very, uh, very thoughtful. You just wait on every word and there's not a whole lot of interrupting and asking him questions. It's kind of just receiving and, and, and taking you know, the instruction from him. Um, so I, I, don't, I don't really know his process or, or much about that. Yeah, no, I've just, I've never known anybody that's worked with him. So I was just interested to see about, uh, about how he went about novel writing as opposed to uh, screenplay writing. Um, now, I know that you said you've got a lot of uh, books coming out, a lot of different projects coming out after this original trilogy. What's the time frame on those rough time frame? I know you've got so, a novella and some other books. So the novella, I'll probably release that around the first of the year, maybe February. Um, and I, what I did is I started my own publishing company. Um, the, as a screenwriter and one that's been blessed with the success I've had, there's a lot of resistance uh, to me in, in the, with the major publishers in New York. Um, on one script, I, 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 you know, I make a fortune that they, they dream for their, some of their writers to sell a thing. I kind of look like this upstart a little bit to them. Um, right. So my manager, who who had I have a literary manager. He uh, originally it was either oh this guy's a screenwriter he can't he doesn't write very well or mm -hmm. um, or legitimately people didn't like what I was writing because it wasn't uh, real genre stuff. It, it was right. a little bit on the outside. So I realized if I want to do it my way, you know I'm going to do it my way. Um, I don't know, and, and God bless all the writers, indie writers out there who, who just really just do it piece to piece and have their other day job and everything else. I've been lucky, I've, I've had a studio of my own. So I did this, I had no idea how flipping difficult it is. And, right. and to, to do, I mean, it is, it is beyond crazy how hard it is. So, um, you know, but I felt I had to do it and, and open it up to other, um, other authors and, and primarily screenwriters who they, a lot of them don't know that through our, our Writers Guild, they own a lot of their characters. A lot of them, you know, who maybe wrote a movie everyone likes and then they never made a sequel. They can go write that sequel if they want. They can't make it as a movie, but if they want to write, they can do it. And so I, I did right. that. I, I opened, opened myself up to that and, and to, to receiving uh, material like that. Um, and so I am, I am able to make my own schedule and release my books, you know, when I can. And, and, and um, so I can say, yeah, maybe February. I think it's February for um, Kaleidoscope. And okay. that's the first novella. Um, and then the Mir Mirror's Gambit will be probably winter of 2023, the first Mirror book. 
Um, in the meantime, I have uh, Berlin Mesa, which is a World War II, II thriller, much more genre, more like a Ken Follett. Um, okay. But it's also a Western. It's, uh, it's, it's set in New Mexico and kind of takes that curl of history a lot of Americans don't realize is that we had 400,000 German POWs in the heartland of America during right. the Second World War. And 120 of them were pretty rabid Nazis, 120,000 of them um, in Oklahoma. And they mm -hmm. had numerous, numerous escapes. Um, makes the great escape, you know, look like nothing. You know, the stuff wow. they were doing. Yeah, it's, it's funny that no one's, you know, so I, I stumbled upon that and, and I thought that's pretty cool. And then, so you, you had, what did you have after me? The FBI, but if you have it in the West, you know, hell, you got John Wayne or Clint Eastwood after him. Right. So you have, you know, in that sort of little boy's great fun stories, it's the idea of cowboys versus Nazis. But I had to, to <laughs> find something, you know, to steep it in reality. So I have, so I went very much and researched deeply into the prison system and the POWs and, and that sort of thing, into the escapes that actually happened. And then I found something interesting that kind of spurred my imagination, a couple of things. Sure. One was that the, you know, the Germans had a lot of, of the British and got a lot of the codes were all broken and they had a lot of this. When Churchill and Roosevelt signed the protocol for US to once we entered the war to take the German POWs, they intercepted that. And in it, it was very detailed and it went down to, if you were in the Luftwaffe and you were shot down in the Mediterranean, you'd go to one of these three camps. If you were in the Africa Corps, you'd go here. And so they knew where their prisoners were going to be sent, sometimes down right. to the very camp. So I thought, well, God, if I knew that, and there was no way, once America enters the war, America is going to outproduce and be untouched by the Third Reich. So right. how do you attack? You can't attack them. They don't have a fleet. And they can't do that. They can't, you know, submarine landings aren't going to do much. So what could you do? You, you could infiltrate these camps and create cells like you oh. have terrorists do. Right. And you'd know exactly where you're going. So you put them in strategic places. Is it to blow up a dam? Is it to do? Well, the camp I chose was uh, in Santa Rosa, New Mexico. Other interesting thing is we had these thousands and thousands of German POWs 100 miles away from Los Alamos. But the army had no idea Los Alamos was anything other than a camp training engineers, you know, driving right. tractors. So right. because the, the FBI kept that completely compartmentized from the, the army. So, well, isn't it interesting? The Germans knew about Los Alamos because Klaus Fuchs, who gave the, uh, gave the secrets to the Russians and, and get, gave them the triggering device for the hydrogen bomb. And he did that, I think, in the late 40s or early 50s. He was sending information to the Russians the whole time. Right. The Germans knew that because they had his family in concentration camps and he was, he was on their hit list. They wanted him. And he had, he'd fled Germany, got to London and got into the program. They knew exactly where he was and they knew what he was doing. So the picture, the picture, the, uh, the book takes off from there. It's wow. what if they insert someone into this camp who knows exactly what's going on at Los Alamos more than Los Alamos knows. Wow. I got a Russian, a, 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 a German expatriate funneling nuclear secrets to, to Moscow. And German was that, Germany was inches away from, from having the bomb. They're much closer than the Soviet Union. I and, understood uh, that, yeah, from a lot of the reading that I've done about it, yeah. They, they were and so that's a, frightening that's close. A, frighteningly close, right. They needed the triggering device. They had everything else. They just needed the trigger. 
And that's what Klaus Fuchs ultimately gave the Soviets. So that's a fun, wow. that's quite a fun book. Um, and uh, yeah, that's sort of my uh, Ken Follett meets Larry McMurtry. Um, yeah, you, you sounds know? like it. And, uh, and that comes out, that'll be released. It's, it's available on Amazon for pre-order and Barnes and Noble and all the usual suspects. Um, and that releases October 14th. Um, right. What's that name? Like the title of that Berlin Mesa. Yeah. Berlin, Berlin Mesa. Okay. Mesa. Yeah. And, and now that one is not, is that going to have any kind of tie into the Muir uh, story in background or is that just going to be uh, a standalone or take place in the same universe? It is. It know? has, it has, I see three books there. I have the second one outlined. I don't know when I'll get to it. Um, but yeah, because the, the, the idea being that if they're going to do this program, they're not just sending one guy, right? So, right. so you know, it, it uh, you know, the operation is the 10 Loki, you know, from Wagner's ring cycle. The Loki is the god of, of all mischief. And mm -hmm. um, I figure maybe three get through. And so, so I have the first book. There'll probably be two, two more with that. Um, as far as characters brushing up against the other characters, there's an idea for that in the first Muir, Muir book, though only... As a as a wink, as an Easter egg, um, not as, right. you know they'll have part to do with the plot, but no no aha moment of, of right, and it's you not going to be uh, Lord of the Rings or or Game of Thrones. Yeah, exactly right. right. Oh, I, I get right. that. We talked about that. Yeah, that's that makes sense. That definitely makes sense. It sounds like you've got an awful lot going on, and you're also going to have an awful lot for people to want to be able to have a chance to stay with you and and keep apprised about what you're working on. What's the best way that people can stay in touch with you, social media, your website, stuff like that? Yeah, I have um, probably for, for quick in touch. I'm, I'm, I've, I've never been on social media. I'm on it constantly now. Um, right. Probably when I'm back into full writing mode, it'll be once a day. But Facebook at Michael Frost Beckner um, at Facebook. On Twitter, which is even more instantaneous, is Michael F. Beckner. I don't know if the capital letters need to be in there or not. I don't know how that works, but it's capital M, capital F, capital B, Michael F. Beckner. Um, right. And then my website is michaelfrostbeckner.com. And that's that's where all my stuff is. And I'm putting, you know, really stuff that I think is important and, and more permanent kind of goes on there. Um, right. And, okay, uh, and yeah, Instagram, because... Instagram, it's Michael Frost Beckner, but I, I I only do that at the request of my wife. I don't understand it and, and get it so well. She's she's a bit younger than me and 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 tells me that I have to. So I, I trust right. her her judgment on that. <laughs> well, Michael, this has been a fascinating conversation for me. I hope our uh, listeners enjoyed it. I know they will. I know many of them are going to love your work, and I know they're going to follow you. So thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. it my pleasure entire, entirely. This is a lot of fun. Thank you very much, Terrence. Thank you, my friend. Um, so I am Terrence McCauley. This has been Spies, Lies, and Private Eyes on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Thank you for listening to us, and have a great rest of your day. You have been listening to Spies, Lies, and Private Eyes with host Terence McCauley on Authors on the Air Global Radio Network.